How's everybody doing? Oh, good, good, good. Hey, I know uh, Corey Drake already mentioned this. I want to kind of reiterate it a little bit. Um, we've been working with Compassion International um, for a while now, and uh, we've been trying to push people to pick these up. We actually have a whole thing of them hanging up back there. They have them, I think, divided by age. Um, so a lot of people like to, to try to adopt a child that's kind of um, somewhat close to their, their kid's age. Um, the reason why we're pushing this so much, it's actually, it's only $38 a month. I was looking on here. I, I knew it was between 30 and 40. $38 a month to sponsor a child. It's $45 a month to sponsor a child and give them health care. So emergency care and um, just kind of ongoing health care to children. Now, just to put that in reference, and, and I know people say, well, gosh, I don't have $45 a month to give or $38 a month to give uh, without being snarky or mean. If we just went from like a venti pumpkin spice latte to a grande one, I know that sounds facetious, uh, but in the dollar a day or whatever, or dollar fifty that we save on that a day, we can give a kid food and emergency healthcare needs uh, across the country. Now we got three hundred of these from Compassion, and guys, I'll just be honest with you: if we have a two thousand plus person church and we can't we can't pick up three hundred of these and do something about it, that's uh, that's not that's not a good thing. So. I'm going to encourage you. We're going to be pushing this all the way through worship night next week, and uh, we'll probably just continue to push it and have these available even afterwards. But um, we're going to pick one up. In fact, this is the one that my wife and I are going to sponsor because I was told it looks like the Colombian version of my youngest Vi. Uh, she's not smiling. So um, anyways, so uh, we're going to pick this one up. Guys, all of us can do this, and it's a big, big deal. And so I just want to encourage you to do that. Um, the other thing I want to mention before I get into the lesson today in the second half of chapter one of John, um, lately, and, and I don't know if it's because of the growth of the church or uh, because I'm trying to be more bold about just truth and, and the word and things like that, I've just, I, I feel a little beat up. And uh, I wanted to say this, and, and I've always been very uncomfortable with my role. I didn't choose this role. I know that sounds cliche. I didn't go to school for this. I went to school to be an English teacher. I used to be an English teacher. Before that, I played music for a living, and that's, that's, I'm very comfortable in those roles. I've been trained to do that, and I'm and, and, uh, and, and decent at those things. Uh, and God called me to do this, and uh, I didn't know it would look like this. I didn't know it would feel like this. I didn't know how hard it would be, but I feel very, very honored, and I'm very grateful that you guys would trust me uh, enough and that you would come here. And um, so this whole office of pastor thing is very awkward for me. It's always very awkward for me. And um, I remember the first time someone called me pastor, uh, we were maybe running 250 or 300 people and we were doing like a cleaning day and I was cleaning something and someone said, hey, pastor, can you help me? And I just kept cleaning and they said, hey, pastor, and I just kept going. And after the third time, I was like, oh, that's me, you know, like, and so I went and helped him with whatever, but uh, I was just uncomfortable about that. Uh, but I want to tell you this, I'm getting more and more comfortable with the role of being a protector of this congregation and what I mean by that is this, is, is I'm very imperfect. I don't always say things right. I don't always do things the right way. I don't have all the answers. Uh, but what I do have in my corner is uh, I love you. Um, I love you a lot. And I would physically protect you if, I'm, if, if, I, if I can. And I will spiritually protect you because that's what the Lord has called me to do. And I'm growing more and more comfortable in being a spiritual protector. And uh, so I guess I just want you guys to know, and I just feel the need to say to you, I will not always get it right. I'm not always perfect, but you can guarantee and bank on the fact that I will do whatever I can within my abilities and within my power to protect you uh, because that's what my role is. I'm called to be a shepherd and shepherds look out for wolves and they protect their flock. 
and that's what I'm called to do. And um, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for letting me get to do what I get to do. And, and I love this church, and you're an exceptional church. That's not because of me. That's because of the Holy Spirit and grace of God. But thank you for being here, and thank you for being open, and thank you for being honest, and, and thank you for holding me accountable. And uh, I just appreciate you, okay? So I just, I don't know why I wanted to say all that. I mean, like, I didn't speak last night. I was at a wedding in Gallatin. And so I got all this like pent up, like, you know, like I want to preach really bad right now. And so I'm being really like vulnerable right now because I'm going to get into the word and maybe be a little sassy. So uh, I love you guys. Let me pray and I'll quit rambling. Let me go through this real quick and then I'll pray. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, I'm on. No, no, no. All right. Thanks. Thanks, guys. That makes me uncomfortable too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm probably blushing right now. Okay, so last week we talked about this. As we started the Gospel of John, we got halfway through the Gospel of John, and this is what we talked about. When Jesus came onto the scene, I'm talking about the historical, physical form of Jesus. When he came onto the scene, he offered humanity a contrasting way to walk, a different way to find contentment, a different way to find salvation than what the world offered, okay? That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to talk about this. We're, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, and then once we're a follower, what does it mean to be a witness of Jesus, okay? So we're going to finish up chapter 1 of John. We're going to start at verse 19. If you have a Bible, it's the fourth book of the Bible. We're in the first chapter at the 19th verse. If you don't have a Bible, if you go to that Version app, it's free. Click on the bottom uh, right button, I think, and then click on events. Our church will pop up, and it's got all the notes and all the scripture and everything right there for you. Very, very convenient, okay? So I'm going to pray, and again, I love you guys to death, and uh, let's see where the Lord takes us today, okay? Um, Lord Jesus, God, I just want to thank you. I thank you for everyone that's in this room. Even if I don't know them personally, God, if they're not a believer, Lord, I'm so glad that you brought them here, Jesus, and I pray that something said today sparks an interest in them, God, for all the believers and people that may even call this their church home. God, I thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted me uh, to be a guardian for them or, or someone to watch out for them, Lord. I feel so honored that you would trust me to do that, Lord, and that they would trust me to do that, God. Lord, keep your hand on me as I teach today, God. Lord, let your word just jump off the pages, God, and speak to our hearts. Lord, bless every church in our community, God. Bless the bigger ones, the smaller ones, everything in between. As long as they teach the truth, God, proclaim that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, bless them, Lord, and let your kingdom advance through them. God, be with us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let me read a little bit. I'm going to do my best to break it down. It's a short lesson, so I won't, I won't keep you that long. This is John the Baptist's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He did not refuse to answer, but he declared, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you then? They asked, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Just as Isaiah, the prophet, has also said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, why do you then baptize if you're not the Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. 
He is the one coming after me whose sandal straps I am unworthy to untie. All of this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing. Now, if you don't know this about the kingdom of God, our church should be good evidence of this, is that the kingdom of God is an extremely diverse place. Now, John the Baptist was an interesting character, not like the typical religious people of his time. He was storming up and down the Jordan River in the desert. He ate bugs, wore animal skin. His hair was probably all nasty and matted up. And he's going up and down the desert, yelling and screaming at people, you've got to make straight the path so the Lord can come in. He's preparing people for the savior of the world, right? So a very unorthodox speaker, a very unorthodox follower of God. So what happened is the orthodox followers of God the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council, the Levitical priests, they guarded the correctness of temple worship. They went to go investigate what this guy was doing. We still have guards of temple worship, if you haven't realized this. Every denomination, every church has those people, no, you have to lift your hands like this, not this. You have to bow like this, not this. All these things, right, were like the guardians of how we're supposed to worship. So the guardians of correct worship were sent to this very unorthodox individual basically to find out what he was doing and hopefully get him to shut up. So John the Baptist, when he was approached, wanted no confusion. So they come up, they ask, they say, who are you? Until he said who he was, he said who he was not. He says, I am not the Messiah. Well, then who are you? I am a voice that is crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. What he was doing was actually quoting from another prophet, Isaiah. And in John the Baptist's humility, he said, I'm not a prophet. He was in fact a prophet. Many call him the last of the great Old Testament prophets. He was the one that kind of bridged the Old Testament and New Testament. He was a prophet, but he was extremely humble. He said, I'm not a prophet, but I'm saying the same things that the prophets of the Old Testament would say to make straight the way of the Lord. So they said, well, if you're not the savior, who the heck are you? And since John was baptizing people by the droves, let me give you an example or, or a kind of a, 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 something that they believe to be a, a number of people he baptized. They believe that John baptized somewhere in the neighborhood of over 100,000 people. That's, a, that's almost like the whole city of Murfreesboro that this guy was baptizing. So if someone baptizes 100,000 plus people, that's gonna make its way on the radar, right? So the religious people are like, okay, so if you're not the Messiah, If you're not Isaiah, if you're not Elijah, if you're not Moses, how do you think you have the authority to baptize all these people? Well, if you go back into the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, that was written about 400 years, roughly, before Jesus came onto the scene, before he was born, okay? Now, in the end of the book of Malachi, Malachi said, God is going to send Elijah to make straight the path the way of the Lord, basically to pave the way for the Savior to come in. Now, so if this guy wasn't Elijah, he was kind of acting a lot like what Malachi said was going to happen. And he was, in fact, John the Baptist was, in fact, not Elijah literally from the Old Testament, but he was figuratively. He was the one that Malachi was talking about. Again, not in a literal sense, but he came to fulfill the prophecy that Malachi had said, and he came to be kind of the front runner, the forerunner for Jesus Christ. So the religious order, the Pharisees, when we get into the gospel of John more, the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? They walk in and it's dun, dun, dun. You know, the Pharisees are there and they're kind of the ones that kind of agitate everything. Not all of them, but most of them. 
So the, the religious order, the Pharisees, were not comfortable with these very unorthodox methods of, of talking to people about God. So they came to shut it down. And they challenged John's right to baptize and to preach. Now, here's the thing about John's baptism. And I didn't put it up there. I should have. When John was baptizing all those people, it's different from how you and I got baptized if you haven't been or if you're going to next week and it's different. When John baptized people, he was preparing them to meet Jesus. When we get baptized, it's because we've already met Jesus. It's different. So he was preparing them to be saved. We are responding to being saved when we get baptized now. So John came to baptize with water for the purpose of preparing people to meet Jesus Christ. Now the baptism is, this is like our baptism. It was symbolic of repentance. It was symbolic of a spiritual cleansing. And even though he didn't have the proper credentials, here in John the Baptist, we start to see that Jesus doesn't conform to religion. He doesn't conform to culture. Jesus does what Jesus wants to do. He sees fit what he sees fit. So in uh, just this opening, right? And in John the Baptist in particular, we see a couple of very important things that John the Baptist teaches us. One is this, we are not the focus of witnessing. What I mean is this, when we tell people about Jesus, when we sing songs or teach the word, or when we do community service projects, when we help the poor, when we help the needy, when we, whatever we do in the name of Jesus Christ, we are not the focus. Jesus is. You guys are awake out there, right? I got sappy at the beginning. You guys kind of tuned out. You're like, eh, Corey's a wuss. Anyways, so we are not the focus of the witness. We are also not the light. We are just here to testify about the light. We're not the answer. There's no answer inside Corey Trimble. There's no answer inside you guys. The Holy Spirit may be the answer inside of us. Jesus, the word of God is the answer. We are not the light. We're just testifying about the light. And over and over again, we are called to be humble. And whenever someone says, man, you saved me. No, 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 I didn't save you. Jesus saved you. Man, you bailed me out. No, no, no. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you've been bailed out. Like we uh, are not the light. He is the light. We also proclaim belief and dependency on Jesus, that there is no good inside us uh, without, without God. That's what the scripture says, that apart from God, there's no light in me. There's no goodness in me. And so we're dependent on him. We're dependent on his ability to do things through us. We see that in John, okay? Next part. So the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I watched the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on Jesus. I didn't know him, but he who sent him to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen him, and I testified that he is the Son of God. Now use your imagination a little bit. 
All of the Jewish people, all of them, not just John and a couple of the other kind of zealous people for God, but all Jewish children were raised up from the time they could understand what their parents were saying, from the time they were little bitty kids, all the way into adulthood. They were raised up to know and to believe that one day God is going to send a savior, that he has promised a Messiah. He's going to send someone to align humanity back up with him to connect mankind and God the Father. They all knew that was gonna happen. So one day, John is out there with a couple of his buddies, right? A couple of his followers. They're sitting there, I don't know, eating lunch or hanging out or whatever they're doing. Jesus walks by and John says, that's the guy. That's the one that we've all been hearing about literally for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's the ones we read about when we were little kids. It's the one that the prophets talked about. It's the one that Moses talked about. It's the one our parents told us about. That is the answer to humanity's problems. Now imagine how big of a deal that is. Ever since Genesis chapter three, if you have a Bible, that's way back here. In Genesis chapter three, at the very beginning of the book, we were promised that the savior would come. And John says, there he is. You can go shake his hand. He's walking right in front of us. He says, there is the lamb of God. Now, when John describes Jesus as the lamb of God, there's a lot of implications that come with that. To say someone is like a lamb, the Lamb of God. It means that they come as innocent. They come as voluntary uh, sacrifices for us. They come as the one that pays the atonement, the cost, the price for all of our sin and shame. They are obedient to God. And they're the ones that hold, Jesus was the one that held all of the redemptive power of God. He's the only one that could save us, the only one that could change the course of humanity. So if you're in here right now, and you have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've never heard that. In a nutshell, let me tell it to you in a couple of just sentences right here. This is the gospel, that Jesus came to replace our inadequate attempts of reconciling with God. Jesus came to bridge the gap, to connect humanity with God the Father. That's what he came to do. The good news is, is that we can't do it on our own, but the only one who can has come and has paid the price for us. That is the gospel, that is the good news. He is also the one that takes away the sin of the world. In Genesis and in, in the entire Old Testament, the sacrificial lamb that was presented by man to God was essentially like a spiritual credit card, right? So once a year, people had sinned, they had been greedy, they had been lustful, whatever their sin had been. And one time a year, they would present a sacrificial lamb and that didn't pay for their sin. It pushed their sin off. They still had debt that had to be taken care of and it just pushed it forward a little bit further, right? This had happened for centuries and centuries and centuries. And when Jesus approached, John essentially was saying, that's the one that's going to pay our debt. That's the one that's going to take care of sin forever and take away the sins of the world. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to say, well, there's still sin in the world, Corey. What's going on? You're right. There is still sin in the world right now. Jesus has not removed the presence of sin yet, but he has provided forgiveness of sin and he has provided freedom from sin until he comes and completely obliterates sin. Man, are you guys awake out there? It is really awesome to think that though sin and evil are still here, we have freedom from, from it and forgiveness for it until it is completely wiped away by Christ, right? 
That's cool stuff. That's what Jesus has come to give us. And so John the Baptist had known Jesus since they were little kids. It's actually interesting. It says that when uh, their two moms got together, that John kind of like kicked around in, in his mother's stomach when he was in the presence of Jesus in Mary's womb, that like they've known each other. They were actually cousins. So they knew each other growing up. Imagine finding out that your cousin was the savior of the world, right? Most of you guys are like, man, my cousin's a redneck, right? So imagine <laughs> if you found out that your cousin was the savior of the world. <laughs> you guys are laughing because it's true, right? <laughs> so John had known Jesus for 33 years now, ever since they were little kids, but he did not know he was the savior until he went to baptize him. Because God had told John the Baptist, when you baptize Jesus, the Holy Spirit's gonna come down like a dove, you're gonna hear my voice, and that will confirm that this is the Messiah. So Jesus said, baptize me because it fulfills all righteousness. John did it, these things happened, and his identity was confirmed. John saw it, John heard it, and he was holding the Savior, baptizing him, and knew right then, this is the one. So the revelation of the Messiah was very unexpected, even from John. Now, it wasn't unexpected that God was going to send someone. He's been saying that since Genesis chapter three. So it wasn't unexpected that the Savior had come, but how the Savior came was extremely unexpected. He didn't come down as a king wearing a big robe and a big crown. He didn't come down as a slick politician. He didn't come down as a rich, extravagant uh, uh, man. He didn't come down as any of those things. He came down as a humble sacrificial lamb. And though he came in humility, this is so important. Though Jesus came in humility, John the Baptist wanted to make it very clear. Jesus is humble, but he is also the creator God. He is humble. He comes in gentleness and he comes very comforting and kind and patient. But Jesus is God and he deserves our respect. Now, people always ask, like in next class, like, why do you take off your shoes? Like, it's not anything profound. I just, when it's warm, I don't like wearing shoes. So, but there is something about this place. We should feel comfortable to come how we are. We should feel comfortable to, to just kind of dress down and kick our shoes off and crack open our Bibles. And this should be a comfortable, inviting sanctuary for you. That's the atmosphere that I believe that the church should be. You don't have to do that, but I like it like that, right? Very comfortable, very inviting, gentle, comforting, kind like Jesus is. We are also in the presence of the one that will judge humanity. So at the beginning of all wisdom, and maybe the reason why we don't see more wisdom in Christianity is because we don't have a proper reverence for our creator. Because at the beginning of all wisdom, the Bible says, the beginning of all wisdom lies in a proper fear of God. That's what the Bible says. And the wisest man that's ever lived wrote that. And then his father also wrote it before him, David and Solomon. Well, that's an Old Testament thing, Corey. Okay, well, let's go to the New Testament where Jesus said, don't be afraid of the world, be afraid of the one that can cast your soul into hell. That's a New Testament thing. We don't need, listen, we don't need to be afraid of God, but we need to properly revere and respect the Lord. If he can create everything like that, he can uncreate everything like that. We know that because it says it in Revelation and we should have a proper respect for our creator. All right. Last part, it's kind of lengthy. Again, the next day, 
John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, there's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard John and left to follow Jesus. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means the anointed one. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw Simon, he said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will now be called Cephas, which means rock. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. So did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. It's kind of like saying like, well, you've found the Savior in Lebanon? Like, really? I shouldn't have said that, sorry. Um, we're never going to plant a church in Lebanon, so I can get away with that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, here is a true Israelite. No deceit is found in him. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe only because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. Then Jesus said, this is so good. I assure you, you will see heaven opened and the angels, angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Okay, so in the Gospel of John, John doesn't focus a whole lot about the calling of the disciples. He just kind of briefly hits on it, right? He briefly hits on a couple of them, but some of the ones that are fascinating are two of them were followers of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, there's the Messiah, so they left him to go follow Jesus, and he mentions that. So Jesus hears that these guys, he knows because he's God, but he hears these guys are kind of creeping up on him, so he stops and he turns around and he says what are you looking for? Now, this is important. When we all decide that we want to follow Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, what are we looking for? Are you looking for a good sermon? Are you looking for a charismatic leader? Are you looking for a fancy building? Are you looking for someone to bail you out? What are you looking for when we start to pursue Jesus? Now, their answer is profound. I want you to hear this. This is a big deal. When Jesus said, what are you here for? Why are you walking after me? Their answer was, Rabbi, where are you staying? When they called him rabbi, they were calling him teacher, which means the reason we are following you, Jesus, is we want to learn from you. We want to walk the way you walk. We want to speak the way you speak. Now, in Jewish times, when someone would follow a rabbi, they would say you were in the dust of your rabbi. What that meant is wherever your rabbi would walk, you would follow behind him and you would walk so closely to the rabbi that the dust of the rabbi's shoes would get on your clothes. 
Now, the hopes of us following Jesus is that we can follow Jesus so closely that the remnants of what Christ does bleeds on to us. Are you with me? That we can walk so closely to him that his dust starts to cover us. That's how closely we want to walk to our rabbi. That's what they meant when they said, Rabbi, where you stand? Because wherever you're going, we want to go there too. So they found the Messiah. Now, Andrew was one of the two that walked with John and then left to go walk with Jesus. Now, his brother was probably the most famous of the disciples, a guy named Simon, who eventually became Peter. Now, imagine if you were Andrew, who ran up to your brother Simon, who owned a a fishing company, so he was a successful businessman, Simon Peter was. He walked up to his brother and he said, hey, listen, this is huge. The one that Moses wrote about, the one that our parents told us about, the ones that are mentioned in the Holy Scripture, the one, the anointed one, the one sent from God, I just met him. I just met him, and he wants to meet you. Now, this is your brother. He's not crazy. He's not out of his mind. You trust him. You're okay, let's go meet him. So they go to meet him, and the first thing, this is also so huge, the first thing that happens, listen, when Simon meets Jesus is Jesus says, hey, They call you Simon, but we're going to call you Cephas, Peter. We're going to call you Peter. And that means the rock. Now, what's interesting about this is this. Simon came wanting to follow Jesus. And the identity of the person that wants to follow Jesus is changed. And it's usually changed into something that we haven't realized yet. What I mean is this. When we approach Christ and we choose to follow Christ, we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. The Bible says we are royal priesthood set aside by God for a special purpose. I don't see that in me, but Jesus has a way of seeing things in us that we don't even see ourselves. He sees value in us that we don't realize, and maybe it hasn't been developed yet. Jesus sees a leader in you, a great person in you that maybe you're not at the moment, but he knows what your destiny is. He knows what your future is. And so when he called uh, Simon the rock, they're probably all just like, you met him? He's got a temper. He's kind of rough around the edges. Like, I mean, like John even says later in the gospel that he was kind of fat and didn't run very fast. He mentions that. (laughs) John says, we had a, we ran and I outran Peter. You know what I mean? Like, And so he didn't look like a rock. He didn't act like a rock. But Jesus saw something in him that he didn't even see and no one else around him saw. And so then they start to find more followers, right? After Andrew and Peter, Jesus then found Philip who ran and told Nathaniel, I just call him Nathan because, you know, we're like that, told Nathan that the Savior had been discovered. And it's funny, I love Nathan's response. Nathan's like, from Nazareth, you say, does anything cool come out of Nazareth? You know what I mean? Like, again, he's kind of making a shot. Like, so the savior came from like a backwoods town. I'm sorry about the Lebanon thing, guys. But anyways, <laughs> so they would, he, he kind of made like this reference. But what this shows is this. It reinforces that Jesus just doesn't work like we think he's going to work all the time. He doesn't work. Um, you know, we would have think, oh, the savior of the world came from New York City or Los Angeles or Paris or London or someplace really cool and prestigious like this. No, he came from a small town, came from a blue collar area, came from a place that we wouldn't expect and it broke the stereotypes and it broke the expectations. Now, here's what's neat. Even though Nathan was a, a little prejudiced, <laughs> Jesus spoke really highly of Nathan. When Jesus saw Nathan coming, 
Some other guys were around him, and he was just Jesus. He's sitting there, and he goes, this is a good guy. This is a true Israelite right here. He's a decent man. And so he talks. He says, there's no deceit in him. What this means is Nathan was a man that loved the word of God. He was righteous. He was looking for the Savior. He was a humble man, and he was an honest man. And so Jesus knew this because he had been watching Nathan closely. He's uh, omnipresent, he's omniscient, he knows everything, can see everything, and he was keeping an eye on Nathan. Now, do we forget sometimes? I think we do, I know we do. Do we forget that Christ is always watching us closely? That's a sobering thought, isn't it? He's always watching us. Now, let me ask this question. I know it sounds a little cheesy. If Jesus was hanging out with some people and you were walking towards him, what would he say about you? What would he say about me? That's an honest man. That's a good man. It's a man that takes care of his wife and kids and he loves the word of God. Would he say that? Or would he say, that's a guy that when people aren't watching, he acts a lot differently. When he's out of town, he treats the waiters differently because he knows they don't go to his church. What would Jesus say about me if I was off in the distance? How would he talk about me to other people? And so the greater question is this. Listen, and let's be honest with ourselves. Are you and I living righteously when no one is watching and we know we won't get caught? Are we righteous at one o'clock in the morning? Are we righteous at work where no one goes to church with us? Are we righteous when we're at a restaurant out of town and we treat the waiter like junk? How do we act when we know that we're not going to get caught? Next part. So, It doesn't actually say this in the scripture. Brooker and I were talking about this, but most commentaries believe that Nathan was probably reading when Jesus saw him. He was hanging out under a fig tree and possibly reading the book of Genesis, okay? So Jesus not only tells us that Nathan saw him, but he kind of alludes to the fact that Jesus saw Nathan and knew what Nathan was reading. He knew what he was sitting there doing under the fig tree. So Jesus says that if Nathan thought the fact that that Christ could see him and knew where he was all the time, if he thought that was cool, he said, just wait. You're gonna see things that you wouldn't believe. And Jesus alludes to Genesis 28, if you wanna go back and read that sometime. That's where Jacob has a vision of a ladder going to heaven and angels are ascending and descending on this ladder from heaven to earth and back and forth. And Jesus says, Nathan, if you think just me knowing where you are all the time is cool, you're gonna see some really crazy stuff. You're gonna see the heavens open up and you're gonna see angelic forces coming down and like ascending on me and descending from me back into heaven. You're gonna see, he doesn't say it, but we're gonna see it later in John. You're gonna see the dead rise. You're gonna see the blind see, the deaf hear, withered arms stretch out. You're gonna see amazing things happen. Just wait. And so we start to see at the end of John chapter one that the kingdom of God is extremely diverse. And I know we didn't go into a bunch of detail about these these five different characters that we've met so far, but we see people as different as a business owner to a crazy guy running around the desert eating bugs and wearing sheepskins and and camel skins and all these different things. We see all these diverse individuals. And what that shows us is this. Our methods may be different, Our personalities may be different, but every single one of us is responsible for witnessing and following Jesus. Every single one of us is responsible for looking for the truth and responding to it. I don't care, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be insensitive. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. I don't... Of course I care, but it's irrelevant to this conversation. I don't care if you know your parents or don't know your parents. If you've been abused, I'm sorry for those things. 
but every single person who has breath in their lungs, we are responsible regardless of the situation we are in, have put ourselves in, have come through whatever, we are all responsible for looking for the truth and responding to it when we find it. That's why the Bible says we must all work out our own salvation. We cannot save ourselves, but we must pursue the answer. And when we find it, we must either accept it or deny it. We are all responsible for this. First and foremost, we are all responsible to be followers. Now, what does that mean to be a follower of Jesus? We often confuse this. What does this mean? Um, First, it means that we must be humble. If you're going to follow someone, it means that you must let them take the lead. You must walk behind them. It means that they get the credit, not you. It means that they are seen, not you. You must be humble. It means we must submit to the authority of God. Well, what is the authority of God, Corey? It's simple, even so much that it's black and white, readily available all over the place. The authority of God is plainly written out in this book, plainly written out. This is the mind of God. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the author of the Bible who gave it through men who penned this on paper. This is extremely important, and this is the authoritative word of God. We submit ourselves to that. We also submit ourselves to people that God has put over us. There's this problem right now. Guys, I'm just gonna be really blunt. Everyone wants a great sermon, but people don't wanna be called out on their sin. Everyone wants me to to say, hey, guys, we're all gonna get to heaven, it's great. Every once in a while, you might like a little chastisement as long as it's not one-on-one as long as you don't have to sit in my office and do it. A lot of people want a church, but they don't want a pastor. They don't want someone to get up in their personal business. And that's not biblical. It's not biblical. All of us need someone. Well, Corey, who do you have? David Young is my accountability partner, and he's the man. He's the pastor of North Boulevard Church of Christ. I know, Church of Christ, spirit-filled, non-denominational, right? But anyways, (laughs) it's it's amazing. Um, But that is my pastor. That's the guy that I call when I'm struggling. That's the guy that I go to for help. He's the one I go to and he's my accountability. And he's the authority that God so graciously has put in my life. And quite frankly, all of us need that. And if you don't like me as your pastor, that's fine. You go find someone that you trust and that you can submit to and that you can follow. That is a biblical thing. And I know that pastors have abused that. And I know that people are imperfect. Guys, I hate to break it to you. Wherever there is humanity, there is imperfection. Wherever you go, well, I stopped going to church because I got hurt. Did you ever get hurt at work? Did you ever get bad service at a restaurant? So you stopped eating and working too. My God, people, let's act like adults for a second, right? Listen, now... I got hurt in church too. And I had a pity party for about three years. And eventually I had to snap out of it and be like, Jesus, this is your bride that you love as imperfect as it is. And I need to love it too. And I need to submit to it. And I need to be a part of the process. The reason why a lot of us have not grown more spiritually is we hate authority. We hate it. Listen, we have to ask questions not just to authority, but also to God. God's not afraid of your questions. Ask questions, but also, and I don't mean this mean, it sounds mean, but shut up long enough to listen for an answer. Ask your questions, and then like the psalmist said, be still 
and listen to God. Know that he's God. Sometimes we're like, God, why, why, why? And he's like, if you be quiet for a second, I'll tell you why. If you'll pick up your Bible, I'll tell you why. If you'll be still for a second, we gotta be still and listen. We also have to walk the ways that our leader walks. That's God. We have to go down the direction that he tells us to go down, even if it's extremely difficult. If you go back, you can go back and read it. When, when, when Saul became Paul, right, when he had his conversion experience, Jesus looked at Paul and said, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. You know what's interesting? The writings of Paul and the, the, the uh, uh, um, Paul is still being um, beat up on and picked on even to this day. If you want to tackle anything controversial in the New Testament, Paul wrote it. So Paul, in some ways, his reputation is still suffering. And Jesus promised this. Jesus said right out of the gates, Paul, it's going to suck sometimes. That, that was a Corey interpretation of that. But <laughs> Paul, sometimes it's not going to be good. And Paul still chose to follow, right? So simply put, following is this. It is praying, it is reading, it is fellowshipping, and it is serving. That's what following Jesus looks like. Praying, reading, fellowshipping, serving. Okay, so once we've become followers, we then have to become witnesses. Now, what does it mean to be a witness? This is also very difficult. Guys, and I am learning, it is becoming increasingly difficult as we go on. The truth makes people mad sometimes. And I used to think that was non-believers. I get more venom from Christians than I ever get from non-believers. There's a lot of venom out there. And this must start, to be a witness, this must start in the home. We keep talking about prayer in schools. God, you need prayer in your home. We keep talking about 10 commandments in the courthouse. You need 10 commandments in your home. Once we've focused on our home, once we've pulled the beam out of our eye, then let's go after the splinters of the world. But our homes are a wreck. And it witnessing starts with me being a good witness to my daughters, being a good witness to my wife, being a good witness to my next door neighbors, to my cul-de-sac. That's where it needs to begin. Eventually, we will permeate schools. We will permeate government. But at first, it starts with our home. Not only that, when we get out of our home, we need to make sure that we earn the right to speak into people. And earning the right to speak is not yelling at them on a street corner. That is not earning the right to speak. Earning the right to speak is showing them respect and dignity and love and servitude. And when we gather that, we can then witness to them. We can share with them about what Christ has done in our life. And then whatever attention we get from that, Whenever people say, man, great lesson or great song or man, your testimony is so awesome or whatever the case may be, whenever that glory starts to come towards us, we need to get out of the way and deflect that right up to the Father. Hey, great job with that. I appreciate that. Thank you for the compliment. It is Christ in me. It is God in me. Put all that on him. Put all of that on him and deflect that. Even when we're talking about our own stories and what God has done in our life, if you've ever been to a next class, I always open it up with, God, please don't let me receive any of the glory from this. And please don't let me brag on things that I did in the past that were wrong. Let me deflect all that glory to you. That's what I always open up with. Man, guys, this is such a simple lesson. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, I kind of gave you a snippet of what a follower looks like. It is not easy, but it is extremely fulfilling. There's contentment, there is joy, there is salvation and following Christ. If you're in here and you are a follower, but you need to be a witness, 
Guys, I'm not going to lie to you. This will get increasingly hard until Christ comes back to earth. It's not going to get any easier. And if we cannot be good witnesses of Christ now, it is not going to get better 10 years from now. It's not going to get better if we elect this person or elect that person. It is going to be difficult. And it must start in the one place that we know we have influence, our homes, our homes. And from there, it will go out. Can I pray for you, please? Lord Jesus, God, I love you. Lord, there are people in this room, God, that are struggling with their faith. They need answers. They need help, God. They just need clarity. Right now, God, for all the people in this room that may be agnostic or even atheist, God, Lord, I pray that something today was spoken that will intrigue them or, or provoke them to, to, look di- to look deeper and to, and to study God. Lord, I pray, Jesus, if, if they have enough courage to muster up enough strength to audibly say, God, if you're up there, send something, help me. God, I think if they will do that and if they're honest, if they're looking, I believe you will do something, Lord. And I pray, God, that you send them someone or show them something, God, or awake a feeling in them or something, God. Lord, for all the people in this room who are followers of you, they love you. They know you're the way, the truth, and the life, God. For those people, I pray, God, that they can be good witnesses to the community around them, good witnesses to their home, their spouse, their children, good witnesses to their neighbors, good witnesses, God, to their schools and to their workplace and everywhere, God, where they may have influence. I pray, Lord, that they bring the light in. Lord, let them bring it in with humility. Let them bring it in with love and and an attitude of serving, God, Lord, let us be gentle, but let us also be firm in our faith, God. Lord, give us strength, Father. As your heads are still bowed and your eyes are still closed, there's people up here to my right and left that if you need prayer for anything, you can come up. There's men and women. They'll pray for you. Prayer for anything. There's also communion all the way around this room. If you have asked God to forgive you of your sins and you want to partake in, in the representation of the body and the blood, you're welcome to do that. As your heads are still bowed and your eyes are still closed, I just, I feel a need to just, I want to challenge you guys. Man, this world is bat crap crazy right now. And if we're ever going to see a difference in the people that we care about the most, guys, it has to start at the most fundamental level. And I'm talking within the four walls of your home. I don't know why I feel so strongly to tell some of you that. Start reading the word of God with your kids. Start praying with your kids at night. Teach them how to pray. Start treating your spouse, if you're married, with respect. If you have roommates, if you're a college student, love them, serve them, be respectful of them. Go out of your way to be a good witness. And then once we've been good stewards with our home, we can move to our schools, we can move to our government buildings, we can move to our place of employment, and we can start to have influence in those worlds too. Lord Jesus, God, I just want to close this out by just praying a blessing over everyone in this room, God. Touch them, Lord. Touch their lives. Touch their families. Touch everyone that they have influence over, God. Lord, let your Holy Spirit just lead us and guide us, God. We love you, Father, and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.